Uh, as we go into today's passage, I just want to give a quick recap of last Sunday's passage, which revealed to us the burial of Jesus after his death on the cross. And we saw the open confession, confession through the action taken by Joseph of Arimathea. We found out that through his action of asking or requesting for Jesus' body after his death so that he could bury him, showed his loyalty and commitment to Jesus Christ. We also found out that Joseph of Arimathea was also uh, a secret or hidden disciple. We found out because he was afraid. He was afraid what his fellow uh, Jewish uh, leaders would think of him. Uh, he was afraid perhaps of the rejection that maybe he may have faced of identifying himself as a, with a dead Messiah. And we concluded last Sunday's passage with two women, the two Marys, and two Jewish religious leaders, which one we just mentioned, Joseph of Arimathea, but also in John's account, we find out there was another Jewish leader by the name of Nicodemus at the tomb where Jesus was laid. So we ended the passage with two Jewish women and two Jewish leaders that were witnessing where Jesus was being laid in the tomb after his death. Now in today's passage, Mark tells us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had died on Friday, was laid in the tomb on Saturday, and now in today's passage, it's Sunday morning. Now I want to say before I go on how as a church in the Christian faith, we gather once a year, right? Uh, we call it Easter. Why do we gather on Easter? To remember and celebrate uh, Christ's resurrection. But I believe, of course, not saying that we shouldn't do that on Easter as well, but every day, every Sunday, should be a day that we remember and be thankful for the resurrection. We will find out more and more. If you have not already know what that means in our lives today. Let's start off with today's passage. In the first verse of today's passage, we read that after the Sabbath, just a reminder, Sabbath was in the, the Jewish people and the law that they followed was a day where no work was allowed, which was Saturday. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, who were the three specific women, if you remember, that Mark mentioned back in chapter 15, verse 40, at Jesus' crucifixion. Here in our church, we open up our Bibles and we look through it and we search it. I'll encourage you to always check with what I'm saying as well. These three women were preparing to go to the tomb where Jesus was laid. Dusk or sundown would signal the end of the Sabbath. And so after the Sabbath was over, these three women, as you've seen the passage, they went out and bought spices to go and anoint Jesus. To help us out here, in the Jewish culture, spices were used to deal with the smell that would naturally happen from the body decaying. The women think Jesus' body will also naturally decay, so they want to at least delay the decaying and honor him in a final act of devotion to him. But Jesus had been saying, if you were following with us through the book of Mark, at least three times that he's going to be killed, he's going to be handed over to the Gentile leaders, he's going to be killed, crucified, 
And then on the third day, he's going to rise again. So if you really think about it, he really didn't need this anointing with the spices to delay his body decaying. But again, that just shows us that for Jesus' followers back then, and it can be very easy for us to think like, oh, they, why did they, what? How did they not see that? You know, Jesus is saying this to them. But if you put yourself in their shoes at that time, it just shows us that we would also struggle as well. And the struggle is that they struggle with Jesus' teachings. They struggle with his words. Granted, dead people don't rise again, right? Dead people stay dead, right? But Jesus is not just some person. He is the Son of God. But nevertheless, the women are planning on going to the tomb to honor him. Now, after having bought the necessary spices, the three women wake up early the next day at sunrise and they go to the tomb. Then Mark briefly tells us a conversation the women had on their way about who would roll the stone away. It would seem from the passage that we see that they forgot that they had seen the stone close the tomb and they couldn't open it themselves. And they're perhaps hoping to find some workers in the area or some people there that, that might help them remove the, the, the stone, help the stone, uh, roll the stone away. We see here that the women clearly did not expect a resurrection. But as they were carrying the spices and worried about how to enter the tomb, they see in a distance that the stone had actually been rolled back. Remember that they were not expecting a resurrection. So when they saw that, thoughts of perhaps whether Jesus' body was taken or some other thoughts may have rushed to their minds. And perhaps after seeing that the stone was rolled away, not knowing how, what, or why, they dropped the spices and hurried towards the tomb. Perhaps they sprinted towards the tomb. But when they get there, instead of seeing Jesus' body, they see a young man sitting on the spot where Jesus was laid, dressed, as we see here, in a white robe. The white robe this young man was wearing frequently in Scripture refers to a heavenly being. In other words, an angel. So this young man that we see here from Mark's account is an angel. And we see how the women react. They were alarmed. Meaning they were feeling a, a mix of emotions. Fear, wonder, amazement, and also distress. Perhaps they don't even know how to process what they're seeing, what they're hearing in that moment. And seeing that the women were alarmed, what does the angel do? He calms them. The angel first tells them to not be alarmed. Don't be, don't be uh, fearful. Don't be uh, distressed. And then tells them of their search for Jesus. He knows why they're there. Now, there is a mild and gentle rebuke here by the angel to these three women when the angel says, you seek. 
And it's because of their misguided expectation that Jesus's body would still be at the tomb decaying like any other body. And right after the angel says, he has risen, he is not here, gently reminds them of their wrong expectation. In ironic fashion, as Mark has shown us these ironic moments previously, especially at the cross and um, at Jesus' uh, mock, mocking trial, these three women were trying to find closure with the death of Jesus because they thought he's dead, done. But all their preparations leave them unprepared for the reality of not a dead Jesus, but a resurrected Jesus. And when the angel said, he has risen, the original Greek reads, he was raised or he has been raised. What does that mean? This shows us that God is the one who has done this. The Father had resurrected the Son to show to heaven and to earth, to everyone, that everything Jesus had said and what he has done, especially on the cross, was right. Validating Jesus' words, his teachings, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And then the angel says, as we continue on, see the place where they laid him. What the angel is doing here, the angel is inviting these three women to look at the spot where Jesus was laid. Which, in fact, two of them that were there at that moment saw that in the previous passage. They went to the tomb to see Jesus being laid in the tomb. To show that Jesus is not dead. If he would, he'll still be laying there. Perhaps with the smell and the decaying. Now, there have been theories that came up to that came up to disprove the resurrection of Jesus, to question or maybe even deny that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Last Sunday, we, we heard one of the theories was the swoon theory, right? If you remember, that's the theory where Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but he actually felt unconscious, but then he woke up later, uh, perhaps in the tomb. So that's the reason he's not there. Another big one theory was that Jesus' own disciples stole the body, and they faked the resurrection. Now, without going too much into it, it falls short because the reasons for it are not strong at all. There are various reasons for why, but the biggest one personally for me is that many people, including all the disciples afterwards when they see Christ resurrected, believed they saw that Jesus rose from the dead. But if Jesus was not alive, why would the disciples be willing to go to great costs, even losing their lives, to believe and tell a lie? Something was false. Why would they go so far to do that? Furthermore, if the disciples of Jesus are told to be a people who stand on truth, speak truth, this would be an odd thing if it was a false thing. But more than trying to defend for the resurrection, which is needed at times, 
I'm not saying that we should ignore it or not do it at all. I believe Mark is more interested in faith in the resurrected Jesus and not in the proof or reasons of Jesus' resurrection. Mark wants us to see that it is an encounter with the resurrected living Lord, not evidence that produces saving faith. And again, while defense of the resurrection is much needed, perhaps a lot in today's society and culture, in today's passage, we see that the message given by the angel to the woman is quite different. The angel, when they see the woman here and showing to them, the angel doesn't lay out a template and give reasons or proofs of why Jesus is not there. The angel simply says, go and tell his disciples, Jesus' disciples, and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. This announcement from the angel is a fulfillment of Jesus' words earlier in chapter 14, 28. Take a look at yourself. In chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus says, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. See two things from there. He said, after I am raised up, saying that he's going to rise again, that's one. And two, he says that I will go before you or I will meet you or gather you at Galilee. So Jesus' words here, just meeting them in Galilee, gathering them in Galilee, is something that he said and that he will fulfill. But it's also words of grace encouragement and the reason is because following after jesus said but after i'm raised up i will go before you galilee you can take a look at yourself we read peter and the rest of the disciples determined words and if you remember what were those words what did they say peter said to him even though they all fall away i will not and jesus said to him truly i tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice you will deny me three times. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they, the disciples, all said the same. And then we saw that Jesus' prophecy came true of Peter and the rest of the disciples. When Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane in the previous passages, all the disciples fled. And even though Peter followed and stayed at a distance, he eventually denied Jesus too. But the word of the angel is not of condemnation to give to the woman to give to the disciples. Not words of, hey, I told you so. Or, wait till I meet you. But a message of hope for Peter and the scattered and afraid disciples that Jesus will gather again at Galilee. Why does Jesus say that he's going to gather them at Galilee? Things very intentional. Galilee was the place where Jesus began his ministry. He began his ministry by proclaiming the gospel and calling people to repent of their sins and to believe in the gospel. And this is where he called his first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. 
to follow him. They had been together in Galilee. They were scattered in Jerusalem now. But Jesus would gather them again in Galilee so that he will now then scatter them to go out into the world. It's interesting to note that here, that Peter's name is mentioned specifically. Pretty easy said, go tell all my disciples or tell Jesus all his disciples to meet there at Galilee. He's going to gather them in Galilee. But he says disciples and they specifically mentions Peter's name. I think that's wonderful. Because after Peter denied Jesus three times, he remembered Jesus' words as the rooster crowed in the background. And Jesus' words came true. And when he realized what he had done according to Jesus' words, he saw himself for who he really was. He boasted proudly that, Jesus, no, I'm not going to deny you. I'll, I'll even die. I'll, go, I'll, I'll, I'll die before I deny you. But when he saw himself denying Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times, he saw himself for who he really was, that his, his words did not match his heart. And he saw that and he broke down and he wept. Jesus knew what Peter may have been going through after that as the rest of the disciples. Shame, despair. They just said they, they will probably say that they will, did not deny him. But we see them now hiding in fear. Jesus was preparing to restore Peter. For us today, this gives us tremendous comfort and encouragement to those of us who have also failed Christ, perhaps many times in our lives. But the question is, even though we will eventually at times, because of who we are as sinners, even though we are following Christ and profess Him as Lord and Savior, because of the sin nature that we still have, we will still struggle and stumble and fall. The question is, when that happens, are we repenting of that rebellion, of that sin towards Jesus, and running to him in repentance and confession of faith? Or are we going to Jesus without a repentant heart and assuming that because God's gracious and he's loving, that even though we come before him with unrepentant heart, his grace is going to just allow us to continue to live in rebellion or continue to live in the sin that we perhaps enjoy. How you answer that question determines a lot of your heart. And perhaps this week is one of the questions that we can reflect on a little more. Now, before we go on to the next verse, I would like to point out something specific here in today's passage. If you noticed, Mark told us back in chapter 15, verse 40, that three specific women were present at Jesus' crucifixion. Two of the three women saw the tomb where Jesus was laid after his death. And in today's passage, all three women, again, are mentioned as those who were witnesses of the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Now, these women are eyewitnesses of the essential facts of the gospel. Jesus crucified, Jesus buried, 
Jesus resurrected. Now Mark tells us that it was women who first discovered the empty tomb and heard the first announcement of Jesus' resurrection. Now, to our minds today, when we read that, we're thinking, oh, what's, what's, what's the big deal about that? It doesn't sound like it's remarkable or just part of Scripture, so just move on. Um, in the first century Jewish context, it was highly remarkable, perhaps even shocking to those who might be reading at that time, as Jewish culture did not place value, if any, on the testimony of women because women were often looked down upon and treated as second-class citizens in the culture. In fact, in a court case, their testimony would be inadmissible, meaning invalid, not accepted, not allowed. Here, Mark tells us that it was women who were given the testimony of the empty tomb. No one back then at that time who wanted to make this, the resurrection, a convincing testimony would have even thought of having women be eyewitnesses. But the record of the testimony of the resurrection, not from men, but from women. In the context back then, it would have been better to record male witnesses and testimony. So the early church and its leaders who would have still been in the Jewish context, it would have been better to actually have male testimony to make the resurrection more convincing. But Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture records is showing that Jesus' resurrection actually happened through the eyewitnesses of these women but through this, I also see how Scripture puts strong emphasis on the value and dignity of women. As mentioned again, in the first century Jewish context and culture, not much value and dignity. We see it in Jesus' ministry. He would often go against the cultural norms of his Jewish context of engaging with women as he showed gentleness, as he showed compassion. Often skeptics of the Bible, of God, make the accusation that God and the Bible has actually a very low view of women. That's actually taking or uh, cherry-picking verses from the Bible out of context. But if you read the Bible in its entirety and in context, the scriptures speak of a high view of women and calls others, especially men, to see and treat women as God sees them and treats them. Going against our cultural norms and being more aligned with biblical norms. We see the greatest example in Jesus. As we move on to our last verse of today's passage, now in verse 8, after hearing the message from the uh, angel, Mark tells us that they left and fled from the tomb, gripped, with fear and wonder. So that, that fear that they perhaps had, that they had at the beginning when they saw, they're now ending with that same fear again. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now from here, there is no indication of faith at this moment in the three women. They're simply scared. So they run away, not saying anything to anyone, perhaps not even to each other. 
but shouldn't they have returned, right? The question is, shouldn't they have returned home rejoicing, perhaps dancing, perhaps crying tears of joy in the news that they heard that Jesus' body is not here anymore. He is risen. He's alive. In one sense, their fear aligns with how others, including Jesus' own disciples, responded the same way when they witnessed the power of God in Jesus Christ. Mark began his gospel by telling us who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, and throughout the book, shown us what Jesus came to do and accomplish on the cross, and now calls us to respond again. That sense of awe, that sense of wonder, the sense of fear should come naturally to us when we are faced with the truths of God, but especially when we are faced with God himself. And if it wasn't for God in sending his son, Jesus Christ, we would always be in a state of fear. Of course, there should always be a healthy sense of fear, meaning deep respect and reverence towards God. Now in Christ, all those who believe in Christ don't have to be in fear anymore. It is that sense of awe and wonder that God himself took on flesh, lived among his creation, lived, died, and rose again for our salvation. That should move us, or at least get us to think a little more. Move us to think a little more about what? Move us to what? It should move us to faith. It's because faith doesn't come from seeing miracles and signs. Even the greatest of all signs that we see in today's passage to these three women, the resurrection was enough to produce faith in them. Rather, faith comes through hearing the whole gospel and personally encountering with the one who was crucified and is now not dead, but alive. For those who have been following through the book of Mark with us here at the church, and perhaps you have never responded, how will you respond to Jesus' call to follow him after seeing his life, seeing his death, also seeing his resurrection. For those who are here that have responded and are following Jesus Christ today, may we be reminded that our faith stands or falls on the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In short, in other words, if there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. Again, us gathering on Sunday like this, there is no meaning. As the Apostle Paul plainly states in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, meaning it's worthless, and you are still in your sins. But thanks be to God 
right? Thanks be to God that all glory, honor, and praise are to him who raised Christ from the dead and to all those who believe in his son, Jesus Christ. We are no longer in our sins. Our faith is not worthless. Faith has meaning. And like Christ was raised, the truth that we see from the scriptures is that we shall also be raised into eternal life after death. Meaning that death is not the end. As a resurrection of Jesus made a stamp on the defeat of death. And we can boldly say, boldly, perhaps even shout, I would say, like the Apostle Paul when he said, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is a sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, it gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. What, what bold and courageous words of the Apostle Paul here. And he's saying it because he himself as well believes and trusts in this truth of his Lord who has risen. The resurrection is a great game changer. Or, as I like to call it, the great combo breaker, which is a reference for those who may be knowing what that is from a fighting video game that I played in my younger days in the 90s, where you could break the combo that your opponent was inflicting upon you. And while it seems for us that death is just winning and it's just pummeling us, but there is no answer to this death question. And while we can't defy or overcome death and that we will all eventually die, no matter who you are, no matter what your status, no matter your financial situation, no matter what you have or what you don't have, at the end of the day, we all die. While we can't defy that, overcome that, for believers, we don't face death with fear, but with hope. And it's because we don't have a buried and dead hope, but a living hope. We can check the score on the scores table or on the wall. We can, we can check the score. And what we see is that there is a big W on Jesus. Win. One. And we see a big fat L on death. Take the L for death. And in Christ, the truth is, if you're in Christ, we also get not the L, but the W. On that cross, when Jesus died, the father of lies, Satan, the devil, perhaps believed that he had won. But he perhaps spoke too soon. He couldn't bring Jesus down to the temptation when Jesus began his ministry. Perhaps this is good too. The suffering and death while suffering and death does not cancel our hope, it clarifies it. Suffering and death does not cancel our hope, it clarifies it. Suffering and death reminds us that ultimately we can't place our hope 
in health, perhaps, various relationships, perhaps, careers, children, money, whatever else that perhaps that the devil tries to tempt us to think that you got to put all that hope in there because that's going to get you going. That's going to save you. That's going to be in this life and the next. Whatever the, whatever the devil tries to do and our own preferences and our own inclinations towards. And while many are good things, none can sustain us in this life. And none can help us to go to eternal life. The only hope that can fail and able to hold us in our living today and for eternity is Jesus Christ. The only hope that can fail able to hold us is Jesus Christ. For those who are going perhaps here today, that are here today, maybe you're going through a moment where you might not know perhaps what's going on in your life or perhaps even questioning what God may be doing in your life and why you may not know or see what God is doing right now, you can remember what he has done. And you can go back to the word. And you can go even further back, remembering that Jesus is alive. And go back to the resurrection and see that no matter what may happen in your life, if you're in Christ, you have a sure promise, not in fear, but in peace that goes beyond all understanding. A few questions for us to ask and think about a little bit more today is, have we repented? Have you repented of your sins truly? Have you confessed Jesus as your Lord truly? Have you professed your faith in Jesus alone truly? Are you following him in obedience truly? And if not, he is waiting for you as he extends his hand of grace. Will you respond by reaching out to him in faith? Let's take some time to respond in prayer to what we have just heard from the Lord this morning. For those joining us for the first time, we're simply going before the Lord and just responding in prayer. What it might, it might look different for some of us, many of us, could be a prayer of confession. Perhaps it's a prayer of repentance. Perhaps it's a prayer of uh, wanting to understand or maybe there's clarification that you need. You can make that request. Or perhaps you just don't know what to say. That's also a response that you can have for the Lord. Whatever it might be, I want to encourage you. Don't, don't let that slide away. I'm thinking, oh, just another thing or whatever it might be. Well, let it slide away, but really, whatever it might be, go before the Lord with it as he is waiting for you. Let's take some time to pray.